0: And so I've questioned it. And I think honestly, every time I talk talk about a, a new wellness topic even, that's not something I've talked about before, or because I'm not a mental health professional, I don't have the credentials to back it up. I question, am I fooling everybody? Like, am I really the person that should be doing this? So long-winded answer to your question, because it's a it's a topic I'm clearly very passionate about. Um, is that, yes, I absolutely experience imposter syndrome.
1: That was Dr. Marie Polowaychuk on this episode of the People of Veterinary Medicine podcast. The People of Veterinary Medicine, brought to you by LUCA Veterinary Data Security. Greetings, DVMs, practice managers, vet techs, support staff, veterinary consultants, and podcast enthusiasts. Welcome or welcome back. On this week's episode of The People of Veterinary Medicine, we are talking with Dr. Marie Hallowaychuk, who is a veterinarian locums ER specialist and overall well-being specialist up in Canada. What is interesting about my conversation with Marie is we really talk about this idea of defining your identity through your career or through your profession, however you make money. And I think this is an interesting topic, especially in Vet Med. And as somebody who has never really defined themselves in any one particular way, and I get into this a little bit, but I've throughout my life I've done and tried a whole bunch of different things. And I've never really defined myself as who I am by what I do. You know, like, sure, I own a cybersecurity and data protection company in Vet Med, but I don't define myself simply by being... A cybersecurity professional, whatever that is, whether that's good or bad, I think creates for an interesting topic. And talking with Marie, there's this idea, at least for her, you know, of being tied to this, putting so much work into being an ER specialist and now being really focused on in a desire to help the profession from a mental health standpoint And a overall well-being standpoint that really drives her and she's really passionate about. But this idea of letting go and being able to kind of say like, you know, I'm not as involved as an ER specialist as I once was and that's okay because now I'm taking this new path. And to dig into that, I think, is really interesting. And I've had this similar conversation with Dr. H. Howells in this idea of that you're not who your profession is, and that's okay. And for some people, it's great. It's a driving factor, and they love it, and there's probably a lot of healthy things about it. But for some people, it can create a lot of problems. And uh, Marie even talks about like the end of uh, your professional career and it's time to retire. Sometimes for some veterinarians, it's really hard to let go. And she helps them navigate that space. Anyways, Marie is just one of those people. Uh, if you listened to my episode recently with Susan Cannon, the co-founder of Vet Billing, she is what, you know, I told Susan, I was like, you're one of the people I need in my circle. You know, and I think Marie is another one of those people that's just really an amazing person in vet med. And I definitely hope to have her in my circle. So with that being said, I think you're really going to enjoy this episode. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. But first... This episode is brought to you by Luca Veterinary Data Security. I know, we've all heard it. Our IT guy has us covered. We don't need cybersecurity protection because who wants to go after Fluffy's medical records until it's too late? And then you call us and we wish you would have called us at least two weeks ago and we would have made this ransomware incident from a major disaster into a mild inconvenience. The best way to know if you're protected is through a cybersecurity audit. It's simple, pretty painless, doesn't interrupt your business day, and can really help you show those gaps as to where you might get attacked or where things might happen. And did you know that on average, two and a half hospitals per week are victims of some sort of cybercrime? So don't let that happen to you. Go to www.luka.vet and schedule your, schedule your cybersecurity audit today. Again, that's www.luca.vet awesome got it (laughs) so great well thanks for um taking time out of your day to chat with me today i really appreciate it and i I also greatly appreciate the scheduling snafu and having to reschedule so thank you for being so flexible
0: not a worry at all i completely understand
1: so if you're ready i mean i only have one canned question and then we'll see where you take (laughs) us
0: sounds perfect let's do it
1: all right so how did you get started in vet med
0: Oh, such a good question. And so loaded. Um, so I actually was raised in a family of veterinarians. So both of my parents are vets. They met in veterinary school and my dad worked for the um, government of Alberta doing, um, food safety initiatives and animal welfare initiatives. And my mom, um, owned and operated a small animal veterinary clinic and um you know i think growing up i mean everybody even my dad you know helped out at the clinic like we spent all of our time after school at the clinic and um from a young age i was just thinking the other day i remember because of course i i have a young daughter as well now and i remember being young and like putting myself into the dog kennels (laughs) at the clinic um but anyways I, you know i was exposed to vet med at a really young age and i and i really came to love it and it just morphed from there it was you know i i briefly considered other careers but always gravitated back towards vet med and got into vet school quite young i got in after 2 years of vet school so i was 19 pardon me 2 years of pre vet so i was 19 years old and um it was interesting you know things sort of took off from there i Decided, you know, after my third year externship at my mom's practice that I just felt like I wanted to explore some facets of vet med outside of general practice. And so that's when I decided to apply for an internship. And I got an internship at Washington State University. And it's there where I fell in love with emergency medicine and critical care. My mentor during my internship was a critical care specialist. We saw so many emergencies. I mean, at Washington State University, it's like the only vet clinic um, for miles. And so we would see like hit by tractor and, um, you know, fell off balcony, you know, lots of traumas, lots of emergencies, great cases. It was fun to work you know, alone with those outside of hours when I was the only vet in the hospital. And so I applied for a residency and I got my residency position in small animal emergency and critical care at North Carolina State University. And so I, you know, Canadian Marie, I moved all the way down to Raleigh, North Carolina for three years, loved it. I think those were, you know, three of the best years of my life, really. I mean, obviously some really tough challenging parts with the residency, but I, you know, met some amazing people. I'm still really close with my mentors. I've got some really good friends that are down there that I keep in touch with. And um, yeah, it was there really that I fell in love with teaching and academia. So I um, took a job as a professor of small animal emergency and critical care at the Ontario Vet College. So I moved back up to Canada and I was there for five years Until I decided it was time to come back home to Alberta and um, left that role, um, you know, very uh, with a lot of hesitation. I love academics, I still do. I love teaching and research, and um, I love the variety of spending part of my time in the clinic and part of my time doing other initiatives. And and that's kind of what I do now. You know, Um, now I'm a mix of some clinic work, some consulting, um, lots of well-being initiatives. I still still say that I'm a teacher because I still do a lot of lecturing and, and online programs and mentorship and things like that. Um, it's just all as per my own schedule, because now I'm self-employed. So, um, kind of have gone full circle here.
1: Well, so you, I want to circle back to something you said earlier on, because this is something that really fascinates me and I'm actually surprised, like, isn't a bigger aspect of vet med. So when I got involved in vet med, I don't know, maybe five years ago or so, um, how do I say this? So I don't I don't eat I don't eat animal products and it wasn't like an animal welfare thing. It was uh, I was training for a big bike race and the fewer animal products I consume, the better I felt. So I don't like to use the the V word because it's it's very charged <laughs> um, and it can be kind of politic. Come with a lot of political connotations, but I was actually fascinated by so many people who love animals. But I, I I guess I just expected or assumed that there'd be more people who are at least vegetarian mm-hmm. and that there weren't. But you talked about your dad kind of being in food safety in animal welfare. So can you talk about that a little bit? I mean, what did you learn from your father and the work that was he was doing? Mm-hmm. Um, is there any interesting things for somebody like myself who now is like, has kind of become more aware of factory farming and potential lack of animal wa- welfare issues? Um, yeah, Is there anything that maybe you can help educate me on?
0: Well, I guess, you know, I would say that, um, you know, there are people advocating for the welfare of the animals within the industry that is currently pervasive when it comes to food production. Like, I, you know, I think there is still a very large population that that eats meat. And and so there is a demand for meat, not just within Canada and the US, but in other countries as well, Canada, you know, exports a lot of our meat products. And so, um, it's, it's very highly regulated and, and there's a lot of individuals, you know, mostly veterinarians who are really advocating for the humane regulation of those industries, um, you know, for, for those who, um, uh, you know, choose not to eat meat for um, animal welfare reasons, or whatever reason, probably still within those regulations don't feel that it's, you know, to their standards of, of what they would want. I just listened to a another podcast this morning, and the speaker said, um, you know, animals are our friends, not our food, you know, she was speaking about her decision um, to, um, you know, become a vegan. And, um, you know, and so, But like I said, the reality is, is that that's, that's not the world that we live in just yet in terms of everyone adopting that mindset. And so, you know, a lot of the work that they do is, um, you know, ensuring that when animals do go to be prepared, you know, to be put into the food system, how does that happen in a way that they feel safe and that it's not, it is the least amount of stress to them as possible and there's all sorts of things that go into that in terms of how they're handled, um, how they're shipped, how um, what happens at the processing plant, and everything else. And so, it's really amazing when you think about all the parts that go into it. It's not just you know the health of the animals and the safety of the food, um, but it's you know everything in terms of you know how they even get there. So. Um, I have to be honest, I, you know, I haven't, I haven't spent like hours or days talking to my dad about the intricacies of what he does. I mean, it's, it's government work. Um, so a lot of it was policy and everything else, but, um, just a lot of thought going into how do we even design these environments so that, animals, um, you know, feel safe there, or it's that everything is, you know, more seamless and faster so that they're not, you know, in this situation um, with awareness any longer than they need to be. So, Lots of lots of things like that. And, and then a lot of it is just disease management, right? Um, I remember, you know, uh, decades ago now when my dad worked for the Canadian Food Inspection Agency, that's where we first started seeing BSE, um, bovine spongiform encephalopathy in the food chain, and of course, a real concern for that being transmissible to humans. And so you know, how are we testing for that? When is it safe to consider, you know, shipping the meat again? And, you know, all of that happening. So, um, yeah, a lot of policies and procedures. And I, in in my mind, maybe a lot that would perhaps put me to sleep, but very, very, very important, um, you know, for for the food chain, for the majority of meat eaters anyways.
1: Yeah, what's interesting is at the beginning there, you mentioned uh, a speaker said, you know, She had made the decision to no longer consume animal products. And she's like, you know, animals are our friends, not our food or whatever. And uh, what's interesting is I think one thing that got me a little bit interested in the topic. Are you familiar with Rich Roll, by chance? Mm -mm. So he's he's a plant-based athlete. He's done like five Ironmans in five days on the five Hawaiian Islands. It's like the Ultraman or whatever it's called. (sighs) But anyways um he's he's been and he's also had this podcast forever like when you used to have to like take your iPod if anybody remembers those and you had to like physically download I do. it like, <laughs> you had to be very intentional about I still have on. my
0: first nano first generation
1: <laughs> Yeah exactly yeah they're great um but he had this guy on that was uh, now like an animal welfare, welfare activist Interesting enough the guy was like a former gang member murderer. He was in prison for a long time because he had murdered I don't know how many people. And one of the things that he was tasked to do when he was in prison was to go work at the slaughterhouse and his job was essentially to like shock these cows to death or whatever. And for him what what I find interesting about this is like just I think the power of the human animal bond connection because like here's a guy who didn't have a problem killing another human being but here was a cow and he it was his job to kill this cow and like he's like i saw the tears running down her face and he's like i couldn't do it like i just couldn't do it and he was like there was something in that animal that like that literally changed me in that moment like it was like a for lack of a better term like a coming to jesus moment you know where he was like i have to do something else and i think it's just really interesting the power of the human animal bond and how that can have an impact. And I guess that's another reason why I'm kind of surprised that and I'm not, ju- I'm not judging anybody. I mean, your dietary choices, are your, your own. And that's why I don't like to use the B word because again, it means that like, I want to tell you how awesome it is and why you should be, you should be one. Um, but it, that's not the case. i mean, I'm just very, I was just kind of interested that more people weren't. And I think it makes an interesting subject.
0: Well, it's, I mean, you bring up a really good point and I have to be honest, my, my, um, primary mentor in my residency was, a um, was vegan and, and like a pure vegan. I mean, he, you know, he didn't wear leather. He, um, just very, um, Uh, particular, of course, unless we were at a veterinary conference where there was like nothing vegan to eat. And he would have to, I remember watching him like chew on carrots and eating bread. Like he would basically sustain himself for the whole conference on that poor guy. But um, you know, there's that end of the spectrum and then there's other individuals and I myself am, am a, and am still a meat eater as well, but it's, it's interesting. And I really, it's so funny you bring this up today because like I said, listening to this podcast, like I was this morning, it just really got me thinking about, um, you know, when I have those conversations with my daughter, as she gets older about what we're eating and why we're eating it and where it comes from. I probably will have to really sit and think about it. And I I honestly, I think ignorance is bliss. I think that um, if you haven't spent time in a slaughterhouse, if you haven't um, seen how our food makes it into the grocery store, then um, you may not be as deeply impacted, but you just figure, oh, I'm just going to show up and buy my chicken. And that's that. Um, I remember in third year of vet school, Third year or second year, we did a fundraising event where um, our class went to help um a, a chicken farm basically like gather up all of their chickens and and basically like load them into this truck so that they could be taken away um for slaughter. And I can tell you it was the most one of the most horrifying experiences in my life. Like it was just like the conditions I mean and I'm not saying that they were not housed in a way that was industry standard but I had never seen that before um like the ammonia in the barn was like burning my eyes it felt so stressful to be like you know grabbing all these chickens and rounding them up and I can tell you like no word of a lie it was like uh, close to a year before I could eat chicken after that. And even now, like I don't like handling raw chicken, like I just um that <laughs> it really changed me and and I guess I just you know, it's awful to say and I feel bad saying it as a veterinarian and as an animal welfare advocate that I, you know, sort of went back to eating meat. I, I obviously there's a whole conversation around where you get your meat from and how that meat is raised and I do feel like we have more options nowadays in terms of humane, humanely raised, um, meat. And I certainly, I'm always having conversations with people about how much better my eggs taste when they come from happy chickens. So, um, you know, but anyways, I digress, but I do, it's a really interesting conversation and it, and it bears giving it some thought for sure.
1: Yeah. I mean, I've never experienced that. And, I don't know that I could, um, I was listening to another guy who was again, talking about this idea of like becoming more sustainable with your food. And he talked about the first time that they, uh, I think it was on Joe Rogan's podcast. I can't remember. It was one of the bigger ones, but yeah, he was talking about this idea of the first time that him and his family had to like slaughter their own chicken. And he was like, I cried for days. Like it was like the hardest thing I've ever done. Um, and he's like, now we've gotten kind of used to it, you know, like it has become part of it, but he's like, it also, and I think what's also interesting is, as I'm like thinking about this out loud, is my senior year of high school, I did this program called Senior Seminar, and I don't need to go down that rabbit hole what that was, but we spent some time on Native American reservations in the Southeast. And there was a lot of ritual or like ceremony, I'm not sure what the right word is, around animal products and food and this idea of really respecting the animal for like them giving up their life so that you could sustain and it was like i saw the same kind of idea or conversation this guy who now had kind of taken the shift and it was like it went from the hardest thing to now like this like kind of utmost respect for some of these animals that like i mean like chickens are supposed to be really dumb right like they'll freeze to death in a water bucket if you if you leave like buckets of water out you know like they'll jump in and then they'll freeze and they'll die and so it's like it's like they're the smartest creatures and maybe even realize it's going on, but it's still, there's this connection. Again, I think back to this idea of this human animal bond, that's just really hard to put into words and describe.
0: Absolutely. They're still animals. They're still creatures. They're living. Um, I don't think we can really tell what their level of awareness is, but there is an awareness there. I mean, I think we can perceive when they get distressed or what have you. And um. Yeah, it's it's interesting. And I do I do really appreciate that idea of having a reverence for our food and where it comes from. And quite frankly, that's not just for animal products, but that goes for our plant-based products as well. There's people picking those products and, and manufacturing them. There's people working in the plants. I, I think one thing too that I really um learned from COVID is you know, some of the conditions that that people are working in at these um, food processing plants. And, you know, we had several food processing plants here in Canada where there was outbreaks of COVID because they're working in such close quarters and they're often immigrant families and low-income families. And so they're multi-generational living in the same home and several people together. And you know, I think we, um, we are all so very grateful to have food and to have the systems that are in place to deliver it to us so conveniently. And so, um, yeah, I think reverence for that in whatever form it is, is, is really important.
1: Well, I didn't mean to make this whole podcast about
0: you know, <laughs> we <laughs>
1: digress conversation, but yeah, I mean it is it is fascinating. So, one thing one one thing I'd like you to also dig into a little bit that you mentioned early on too is is expo- the idea of exploring this the idea of working outside of general practice. Yeah. I think what is interesting about this topic, and hopefully some of the listeners will get a lot of value from, is you know, like I think. I, I I wouldn't say it's like weekly, but you know, I get emails like via LinkedIn from a lot of veterinary professionals, whether it's practice managers, whoever, who are like, hey, Clint, like I'm I think it's time for me to get out of general practice and do something else. Do you know of any opportunities or are you hiring? Or,
0: you know, mm-hmm. I, I get a lot of
1: these questions. So for maybe people who want to stay in the industry but are interested in in getting out, what was that journey like for you?
0: Oh, such a good question, Clint. And you know, I think it's interesting how in this um in this industry, in veterinary medicine, we really kind of pigeonhole ourselves into a certain role. And um, I remember being in academia and just feeling like I loved what I was doing, but it just it didn't feel sustainable for me to be living in Ontario away from my family, um, you know, in just kind of a different world that just didn't really sit right with me. And I remember speaking to my realtor um, who had sold me, um, helped me to find my home and she'd become a friend of mine. And I was just like, you know, I'd love to move back to Alberta, but... But there's, there's no, at the time, you know, there, there, there was a vet school, but it was just starting and there wasn't a job for me. And I was like, but there's no vet school for me to move to. So then I'd have to move to Saskatchewan where the closest vet school is. And she was like, whoa, whoa, whoa why do you have to stay in an academic position? Like what's to stop you from like doing 100 other different things, like opening your own practice or starting your own business or, and I was just like, what are you talking about? Like, this is what I do. Like, this is my job. And it took a a real, um, you know, uh, it took a lot of thinking and processing and sitting. And I'll be honest, I spoke with a life coach, you know, to talk about some different things. And it was a lot to kind of get my head wrapped around. There are other opportunities for me. I mean, I, you know, I spent a lot of time on LinkedIn as well. And I see a lot of different postings for, you know, different up and coming veterinary related tech companies and, you know, other industries. And then of course there's, you know, pharmaceuticals and, and pet food and, um, regulatory medicine, like my dad was involved in. I mean, there are so online education, you know, there's a a company that I do some teleconsulting work for. They're looking for a veterinarian to just lead their online education component. I mean, there are so many jobs that are available for people who feel feel like they want to move on from clinical practice. So honestly, I think um, always there's a benefit to speaking with a life coach, somebody who's even maybe not in the industry to kind of really open your eyes to like what it is that you're actually interested in. What are your core values, how, what sort of life would align with those core values. Um, and then maybe talking to other coaches within the veterinary industry, we have a lot of veterinary life coaches like myself and others who this is what we do, you know, like we help people to kind of sort through this stuff. And so, um, and just getting out there on the job posts. I mean, it's amazing. All these new companies that are cropping up. It's so exciting to see veterinary medicine transforming and We've been, you know, traditionally such a um, a non-tech savvy group of people and a real like, well, we've been doing this way for 40 years, you know, kind of thing that nobody wants to kind of think outside the box, but that's changing. And with that change, I think there's lots of new opportunities that are coming up.
1: Yeah, that's a great, I mean, that's, yeah, I mean, you said it very well. And, you know, all these new opportunities. I know one, one goal that I have for Luca is that I would love to eventually hire like, A chief veterinary officer. And for a couple of reasons, one very selfishly is that I would love to have a veterinary on staff so that like, I kind of have like for my own dog, you know, like, Hey, but I think it would also be a great benefit for the rest of the staff to have like a veterinarian that they could go to and get consultation from. And they like kind of work for us, you know, and like with us and are helping guide us. And then also keeping us up to date as to what's going on in the medical world. And I think there could be a lot of benefits, but you're right. Like I'm a cybersecurity and data protection company, and I would love to get to a revenue point where I could afford to really pay a veterinarian what they deserve to be on the staff. And Yeah. So I think there is a lot of opportunity there. One other thing that you kind of talked about and it came up in a conversation when I was interviewing Dr. H. Howells and it was this idea of like our job as our identity. And I heard you say, you're like, well, wait a minute. Like when your realtor was like, why don't you think about doing something else? You're like, well, what do you mean? This is, this is me. Like, this is what I do. And this idea that we are, that our identity is tied to our job. And in some ways that can be good. And in some ways that can be bad. So can you talk a little bit about that?
0: Such a good question again, Clint. And honestly, um, I, yeah, I, I, the statement that comes up for me is Who am I if I'm not Dr. Marie Holloway Chuck? You know, um, and that was something that played over and over for me in my mind when I was considering leaving academia. Who am I if I'm not? you know, assistant professor Marie Holloway Chuck. And, you know, even in recent years, because my focus is really shift towards promotion of mental health and well-being in the profession. And so I spend much less time in the clinic compared to what I used to. I mostly keep up with the well-being literature. So I'm not as on the up and up, you know, with clinically what's on the forefront of a veterinary emergency and critical care. And so, especially going back into the clinic in recent months after my maternity leave, I just, kept questioning myself, like, should I be doing this? Like, you know, um, is this something I need to let go of? But then in my head, I'm like, but who am I if I'm not, you know, Dr. Marie Holloway Chuck locum critical care specialist? I mean, that's such a big part of what I do. And um You know, I I think it's, you know, what, what is good about that, I think is a, a sense of belonging, a sense of connection. You know, I feel connected to my peers in the veterinary industry. Certainly, you know, in my specialty, we're a small college of, we're fast growing, but we're still, there's only still, you know, hundreds of veterinary emergency and critical care specialists, you know, in the world. And so we're a small niche and, and, it's nice to feel included in that. It's nice to feel, um, a little bit unique in that. Um, so I think those are the good things. I think what becomes difficult, you hit the nail on the head is when you just can't see the forest through the trees. It's like, you can't imagine anything else and heaven forbid something happened. And I could not practice veterinary medicine because I was physically or mentally debilitated. Um, it's scary to think that a person can totally lose themselves and feel like, you know, they no longer exist as a person because they are not that anymore. And I'll be honest, I see that in some, um, uh, you know, more seasoned veterinarians who are towards the end of their career when it comes to retiring and they just can't seem to let go and retire because they just can't imagine a life not in that role and who am i if i'm not this and i think that's where remembering you know we we are people completely independent of what we do whether it's a mom a daughter a friend a sister um you know or a veterinarian we we are th- still who we are and and there's a lot of research in the well-being field to really um indicate that it's important for us to really um nurture that and develop that and to have that sense of self outside of those identities that we hold for ourselves
1: so i'm really fascinated by this like this statement you said who am i if i'm not this concept the reason i'm fascinated by this is like i have no concept of what that feels like so to give you an idea like how do I? How do I even start? Like, I, I've always wanted to do anything and try everything, right? So, um, you know, I worked for a sports supplement company that led me into development work, and then from there, as a developer, got, I got into consulting, and then I went to law school, and I played in a punk rock band, and we played Warp Tour, and. Um, I yes. love the ski. I love the snowboard I the
0: warp tour. Yeah, exactly. Do <laughs> you
1: remember the Ernie ball stage? Like the, the guitar string maker? Yeah. So, um, there was that, you know, like this year I decided to pick up uh, whitewater kayaking. So like, I always love trying and exploring and doing new yeah. things. And sometimes I like, sometimes I almost have like, I feel the opposite. I'm like, I've never really dedicated myself to one thing. I think, Being now really having focused more on cybersecurity, I think having a well-rounded approach and at least my technology background has made me more suitable to be able to understand this industry because I can see it from different angles, from the networking side, from the software development side, and all the pieces that we have to deal with. But that aside, I've always kind of struggled with this idea of like, why have you know, where would I be or what you know what would I've done if I instead of you know at twenty years old. Going and working for a sports supplement company, I had really dedicated myself to something else and really pursued pursue or push that. And so this idea of, you know, who who am I if I'm not this is really foreign to me. So, yeah. can you maybe like elaborate for somebody who like doesn't? I, I just can't seem to put myself in those kind of shoes. I mean, what's that like?
0: You know, Clint. I think honestly, it comes from um, this process of becoming a veterinarian um, and so it, it, it is still, um, difficult to get into veterinary school. I mean, it's a highly competitive field. Um, I think most of the veterinarians you speak to, not all certainly, but most of them really felt from a young age that they wanted to be a veterinarian. So like as kids, they were thinking, you know, when I grow up and I, and I talk to parents all the time that are like, our daughter wants to be a veterinarian when she grows up. Like, I think most kids go through at one point or another wanting to be an animal doctor when they grow up, but veterinarians, veterinarians, veterinarians actually follow through with that dream so it's like their childhood they're thinking about it in high school they're thinking I know it's hard to get into vet school so I need to get the grades to get into vet school then in their pre-vet years or you know degrees or whatever it is they're thinking similarly like what do I need to do to make this happen and then they make it happen and so if you think about it that's a lot of your life living within that identity in some way, shape or form. Um, I mean, think about it. I mean, you must identify in some way, shape or form as a son to someone. Right. And so that's, that's a part of your identity because you've lived with that so much of your life. Can you imagine like not suddenly one day thinking I- I'm not a son anymore? Like that would be, that would feel weird. Like, I, I don't know how else to make the analogy, but, um, I think that's how it is for vets. Like it's so ingrained in us and it's such a big thing and it's such a prestigious profession. It's so highly regarded. You know, even now as a well-being advocate, I talk to lay people and pet owners that are like, what veterinarians, you know, have high rates of suicide. Like I always wanted to be a vet. Their job seems so amazing. Like, how could that be? So again, um, you know, it's a very revered profession, um, difficult to get into, prestigious. Um, I, I I don't know. I think it's, it's it's so much so that it's a tough thing to let go of. And I'll be honest with you. I mean, the average student debt for, um, most American veterinarians anyways, at this point in time is close to a quarter of a million dollars, you know, close to 250,000. So, um, you're carrying that with you for the rest of your life. And so it's kind of like, I don't know, at what point do you let go of that identity? I'm not, I think it's pretty hard. I think it's just, I don't know, there's something unique to that. And I'll be honest, I haven't delved enough into the literature. I know that there is some research um, out of the Royal Vat College where they have looked at this notion of identification with the profession and what that means for our well-being. So there is some information out there that I'm, that I'm not as well-versed on as I could be, I, but I don't know how it compares to physicians or lawyers or teachers or other people, per se. I mean, you are clearly a jack of all trades and doing so many different things. I mean, how different would your life have looked like if you you know, were practicing law today? Like you might just completely have a different identity about yourself, but right now your identity or what it has been has been this person who can do kind of anything and everything. And so, um, yeah, it's interesting. You know,
1: what, what's really fascinating is you talk about this idea of, like relating it to be a, be a son and not to try to like make the conversation difficult but again that, that's like I guess like to as Brene Brown says like to be vulnerable you know like I, I grew up in a broken home and yeah. I haven't I haven't talked to my parents in probably close to 10 years I think my dad was in jail the last I heard he may be out now yeah. um, but like even this concept of like like as I got older, like to so me like, oh, well, I'm going to go on this awesome camping trip with my dad. I'm really excited. Like to me, this idea was really foreign. I was like, why the hell would you want to hang out with your dad and like not with your friends? You know, because like to me, I was it was totally. like, yeah, like when my dad came home, it was like either verbal abuse or physical abuse. And I kind of had to pick one or the other. And I never really knew what was going to be one. So this idea, this were like father-son relationship was also very foreign to me. So even, you know, even in the that example, like it's really hard for me to like, because I'm like, yeah, like, yeah, like if, I mean, I like, yeah, if he died, it would be sad. And, but I don't know how I would react, honestly, because I've been so disconnected. So, yeah, even, even that thought yeah, process. Yeah. So that doesn't too,
0: resonate though. with you at all. Yeah. 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 I mean, how does it resonate for you to imagine having to pigeonhole yourself into one role for the rest of your life? Like, does that,
1: does, ooh, yeah you know honestly that's a great question because i think about i do think about that a lot and i think about like how fortunate i've been in a lot of my career opportunities to be able to explore like having the opportunity to be able to train for an ironman and
0: wow.
1: having the opportunity to be like, Oh, I want to ride the triple bypass and be able to kind of have that time and that flexibility to put that kind of time in the bike and, and to do different stuff that intrigues me while still, you know, while still being able to feed myself. Yeah. And so it's a lot of times I do think about, actually, I think what I think about more as I'm thinking about this out loud is the idea of, uh, yeah, I guess that is scary to me, mm-hmm. like being tied to a physical location or kind mm-hmm. of like for me, it would be like being jailed in or imprisoned. It would be really tough to manage, you know, like I kind of need to be on the move and and moving and, and and kind of always on the go. And my wife jokes all the time because she's like, we could never do a beach vacation because there's no way you could just sit there and hang out all day. I'm like, no, I'd have to like go surfing or like, Snorkel, like I would have to be doing something.
0: Excursions, yeah. So interesting. I mean, I would imagine then one of your core values is freedom or flexibility. Yeah. I don't know what word resonates more, but um, yeah, that's interesting. I, I mean, Clint, I don't know. I don't know what example to give you.
1: <laughs> no, it's okay. You don't. Yeah, you don't have that I'm one.
0: Sorry, I, I picked. I picked a little bit of an example that might have been triggering, and I apologize for. No, oh, no, no.
1: It's, it's totally fine. Yeah, I don't background. mind it. You know, actually. You know, I, I don't mind. You know, hopefully, uh, hopefully it helps people connect with the podcast a little better and help yeah. me understand yeah. what, it's my so life story, but, yeah. The
0: things, you know, the things that we never know about individuals and, and, you know, families are complicated and, um, I obviously still have relationships with my parents, um, especially given that we're in the same profession. They're both retired, of course, but they they take in enough continuing education still. They'll pop on my webinar sometimes. And, you know, so we'll connect um pretty commonly. Um, but you know, we've had our share of ups and downs over the years as well. I mean, I can tell you that when I told my mom that I was going to pursue an internship and um that uh, I wasn't going to, you know, start working at her practice as soon as I graduated, which is, of course, what she was hoping for, that I would work in her practice and take over the practice and it would, you know, be passed down, you know, to subsequent generations. Um, she was very upset with me. And um, that's putting it nicely. Um, she didn't speak to me for almost a year after that. So, um nothing compared to what you've been through, but all that to say that families are complicated, and yes. um, life is often not what it seems, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, to circle back to something else you said, you talked about this idea of like kind of being out of out of practice and then going back and kind of doing some locum work or yeah. relief work, as we say here in the states. and getting in, in this idea of like, well, I'm not really like up to speed. And what it made me think about is um, oh, I'm so terrible with names. She's a professor at Arizona state university. Oh man, what's her name? I feel so bad that I don't remember her name, but anyways, we, I was t- interviewing her and she was talking about like showing up the first day of bed school and feeling like an imposter and like dealing with this imposter syndrome. And so I mean, do you, do you struggle with that now that now that like, this is still so part of your identity, but now you're getting back into a situation where it feels like you almost don't belong now because you're not so up to date.
0: Yeah. You know, Clint, it's funny when you were kind of segueing into your question and, and recapping what I had said immediately, what popped into my head was imposter syndrome. Even before you shared your conversation um, with a vet from Arizona state, Um, absolutely. And, and that's, it's something I talk about a lot. Um, you know, I've written a blog on imposter syndrome. You know, if I'm so successful, why do I feel like a fraud was the name of the blog. Um, and I wrote that really at the peak of, you know, developing my business and having tons of speaking work and, you know, working clinic shifts often. And, um, I, I think the first time I felt like an imposter was, um, when I got into vet school. And I'll be honest. um, It's because both of my parents are vets. I went to the same vet school that they did. And no word of a lie. I was like, okay, well, as soon as anybody finds out my parents are vets, they're going to know that that's the reason I'm here because clearly I am not the sharpest knife in the drawer. Um, I wasn't top of my class. I I was I was young getting into vet school. A lot of people had already taken anatomy and physiology. I've never even taken those classes in my undergrad because I just had the bare minimum of pre-vet to get into vet school. I don't think they let vet students get in after just two years anymore, but... All that to say, I didn't tell anybody that my parents were vets until fourth year, basically. Um, And even then, most people just thought one of my parents was a vet. They didn't know that they were both veterinarians. Um, And, you know, then when I got into my internship, it was the same thing. I was like, oh, my gosh, everybody's so smart. Like, I didn't learn that in radiology. And they're like reading these x-rays like nobody's business. And I better keep quiet or they're going to find out, you know, that I really shouldn't be here. Um, And absolutely same thing in my residency. I mean, the residency was so hard. I mean, you're at an even higher level. And I remember being in my residency orientation and there was um, one of my now friends um, who was starting her internal medicine residency. She went to Yale undergrad. She went to Cornell University vet school. I mean, I was like, Yale, that's like something I've only heard of on TV. Like I never knew anybody who went to Yale. So She was so smart and I felt so stupid in comparison and really questioned myself being there. So there have been all of these moments in my life, um, you know, same thing when I started my assistant professor job, um, when I started my own business and now going back into the clinic where I really get triggered into that imposter syndrome again. And so, yes, I have felt it. And yes, in the last few weeks, I felt it very strongly, um, particularly because a lot of my job in the clinic right now is to mentor. For the interns, the new interns that are starting. And so I'm very mindful of like what I'm teaching them. Is it up to date? Um, evidence-based medicine is so, um, it's such a foundational, um, Uh, concept for me it's so important to me I'm not I've never been a person that just teaches well I've always done it this way it's like really important for me to be able to back up everything I teach with evidence and so to feel like I'm not up to date or up to speed is is really a terrifying thing for me and so I've questioned it and I think honestly every time I talk talk about a, a new wellness topic even that's not Something I've talked about before, or because I'm not a mental health professional, I don't have the credentials to back it up. I question: Am I fooling everybody? Like, am I really the person that should be doing this? So, long-winded answer to your question, because it's a it's a topic I'm clearly very passionate about. um, Is that yes, I absolutely experience imposter syndrome.
1: You know what's fascinating about that is like I've talked with uh, Logan, who works for me. She's my customer director, director of customer success you know, she's like, do you think I should pursue like some technical certifications and that sort of thing? And I was like, you know, as as somebody who spent a lot of money going to school, like (laughs) nobody, like nobody, when I've applied for a job, nobody said like, hey, can I see your, your, your diploma from Purdue? Like, yeah. that you actually graduated from law school, I like put it on the paper and like, oh, that's fantastic. Like you must be like a great analytical thinker and stuff, but nobody's ever asked me to see it. Like totally, it's in a safe somewhere. And I think it's, you know, like the corners on the thing are probably crumpled in from being in this safe, okay. but I'm like, nobody's ever asked me. And then, so you like my conversation with Logan, as and I think now even the approach now is like, yeah, there's like You know, I was studying for the CISSP and for me, I was like, well, do I need to spend $2,000 to get the certification or is it just more important that now I have this like what is considered the gold standard of education now that I've kind of gone through the study program to help now provide this to our clients and to our hospitals? And for me, I was like, well, it's probably more important to give it to the end user that I'm actually trying to protect than to have the letters behind my name, which I think is another interesting thing because I've had this conversation a lot that, you know, a lot of times like, it just seems like in this industry, the letters behind your name are really important. You know, like people really appreciate that. I remember I started putting JD behind my name because there were so many vet owners that once it was like, once they realized, like, maybe it's like this kinship of like, oh, okay, you spent a lot of money to go to school too now. So like, now we, we have this connection and I can trust you. But it was like, once they found out that I went to law school and I sat for the bar and I did all this stuff they immediately trusted me more. It was like, it was almost like street cred. And so I think, you know, Josh Feisman. Yeah. Cause he, I think he introduced us, but we've talked about this a lot in this idea of the industry kind of having this like letter acronym, you know, kind of addiction. And so it's hard because like back to like my conversation with Logan, I'm like, well, it's up to you. I mean, yeah, it does give you street cred in this industry, but is it, is it really necessary? I don't know, you know?
0: Absolutely. And I struggled with that. I remember speaking to my psychologist um, at the time and having a conversation about shifting my lecturing to wellness related topics. Um, because I had been lecturing for years on emergency and critical care of which I'm a specialist. And so, you know, as you said, I have got street cred, I practice medicine, I, I have done sat the boards, I, I've done the research. Um, and she said to me, what is the difference between researching for a lecture on emergency and critical care and researching for a lecture on wellness? She's like, you're an evidence-based person. You're going to do the research. You're going to be on the same PubMed research sites. Um, What is the difference? And that's exactly what I said to her. I I don't have wellness credentials. I'm not a mental health provider. I I don't have certifications. I don't, you know, this, that, and the other. And she was like, you don't necessarily need that to be able to deliver that information. Like she was one who really said to me, like, I think you need to get out out of your head because I mean, a few years ago, I was putting together an application to do a master's of social work. Um, I was like, I need to to have this MSW after my name if I'm going to be talking about wellness stuff. And then I was like, are you crazy? Like, I don't want to go and do a two-year master's and defend a thesis and this, that, and the other. Like, I'm a lifelong learner. I'm sure I would enjoy it. But it's the time and money that you're putting into it. And for what? To have three more letters after my name when I can... Connect with my industry followers and still share information that is helpful um, without it. So, um, I have a friend who's a veterinarian who's struggling with the same thing. She's shifting into a different um work role that is outside of the industry. And and she does share that she's a veterinarian because of that, you know, kudos like, oh wow, you're a you're a veterinarian and you're an intellect and blah, blah, blah. Um, but she said it's just so interesting for some of the industries that she's trying to get into. She's like, people don't care. Like it's not, it's not a thing. Like they're not um credential driven the way that we are in veterinary medicine. And I don't know where that comes from, Clint, if it's Because we worked so hard for our DVM or our, you know, MVD or whatever it is. Um, I I don't know. It's uh who knows. (laughs) Yeah.
1: What's interesting though, you know, you know, going back to this idea of like having a hard time putting myself in those shoes, like, you know, for me, what's interesting is I was part of another project and there's like one person that we were we were um and I was like facilitating some conversations, but what's interesting, it was like, the reverence for this one person who is like, you know, a research scientist and stuff. And like, I've never, not that I don't, how do I say this without trying to say, like, I don't appreciate the work that they've done or that they're, they're, very special in what they're doing. But for me, I've never been afraid to be like, I've, I guess I've always just had the mindset. It's like, well, if somebody else can learn it, there's no reason that if I don't dedicate the time I can't learn it to Right. Like it may take me longer. It may be faster than them. But if I really want to dedicate the time, if they did it, there's no reason why I can't do it. Right. Um, And sometimes you're only limited by time and money. Right. And so but I in that I saw other people that were like, you know, like this reverence, like, you know, I was also part of. um Uh, the city of Arvada, I was very involved with, with a lot of stuff there and got to know the mayor and people in city council. And it was like, people like held people like, Oh, this person's on city council and now they're going to be a state senator. And it was like this like reverence and like kind of this like pedestal style thing. And I just never, I've never had that. I'm like, they're just like me, like there's no difference, right? Like they're just in a different position. And so I guess it's allowed, you know, coming, I guess where I'm going with that is because I've never been afraid to approach people who are in a different position who are higher up and just like dude i'm new like can you just can you you obviously know this can you can you teach me or help me learn has allowed me to explore a lot of things and i guess has helped me navigate not feeling this like imposter syndrome but but being excited about learning something new my problem is is where i get to a point where i feel like i've exhausted all my resources on it and there's nothing else for me to learn on i'm like well what else can i do i need to move on to something else
0: Yeah, I think you have an incredible growth mindset for sure. Like you are just, you know, whatever it is that you want to do, as long as you learn and take the time to investigate it, you're going to be able to do it, you know, which is incredible. I think some people have a very fixed mindset where it's like, I would never be able to do that. Like, that's just not something that I would do. And it's interesting, you know, as you were talking, I was thinking a little bit more about maybe where this imposter syndrome and these credentials and why it's so important because clearly – that is not a value to you. Like you do not look at credentials as something that is important or or means anything to you or means as much to you as it might to somebody else. And I think maybe to to bring it back full circle, maybe it ties into um, the, the identification that we as veterinarians have with our role and with the time that it took for us to get our DVM degree, that this is a big thing for us. And, and so you know, with how important that is, like that's, we, we put that same importance on another person's credentials. And, you know, I think going back to that imposter syndrome as well, um, you know, if people find out that I am not good at this job as a DVM what does that mean for me as a DVM you know what I mean and so it's it's amazing like this is where you know I think if there's one thing I would and I do I feel like I'm getting a second degree in psychology with all the reading and podcasts and everything else I'm listening to but I find the mind so fascinating and the more I learn about emotional intelligence and emotional awareness and psychology um the veterinary industry has some very fascinating people in it, and it's really interesting to see these tendencies and how they play out and to think about why um, why they're happening.
1: Yeah, I mean, you that should be like the new tagline for my show because it's like, you know, I'm all about finding amazing people doing amazing things and just… Telling their story, right? Hence the name people of vet med, right? Yeah. Um, but speaking on that note of amazing people, Dr. Tina Tran, I don't know why I couldn't remember her name, but she's the educator <laughs> Yay, at ASU. I'm sorry, Tina, that <laughs> I totally blanked on your name. It's not you. I think it's probably the, the punk rock experiences in my life that maybe have... <laughs> infuriated to some <laughs> short-term memory losses. I'll leave it at that. You can
0: we'll blame it on that.
1: Feel, yeah. You can fill in the I'm blanks, but. Sure I'm
0: not the names either. So
1: <laughs> okay. Yeah. But I think another final, kind of another interesting thought on this like credentialing piece is while I know it's not legal and I won't do this to put somebody in, a, in an illegal situation or to jeopardize their career. There are so many vet techs that I know that have been in the industry for so long. I personally would feel comfortable going to them and saying like, there's something up with my dog. Can you take a look and tell me what you think? because they have been around it for so long. And and like, I know, even though they don't have the DVM, like I personally would trust them. So like if we could hop on an Island somewhere and we're outside of the legal system and we're in like international waters. And at that point, it doesn't matter. Like I would completely trust them to give me medical advice because they've got, you know, some, some 15, 20 years of experience working hand in hand and doing medicine with these doctors. And so I'm like, Mm -hmm. I would completely trust you.
0: Who do you think did most of my teaching during my internship and residency? It was the vet techs. They had been in the ICU for, you know, 20 some years. They knew how things were done. I mean, I learned the theory and the, you know, the the other, you know, heady high level stuff from my mentors and from textbooks and and so on. But the real like boots on the ground training very often has come from my technicians. And I tell people this all the time and, you know, pretty soon it'll be vet tech appreciation month coming up here again this fall. I would be nowhere and I would be nothing without my vet techs. Like they are amazing. So yes. Um, and it's not that they can't give you advice. They are just technically not allowed to make diagnoses or prescribe medication. But yeah, I mean, techs are amazing and, and they're, they're human beings with intelligence as well. Like they, they know what they're talking about and they might not necessarily know how to explain the why of what they think is happening, but they could probably tell you what's happening.
1: Yeah. So I also kind of want to circle back and one thing that you've talked a lot about, and actually you've kind of talked a lot about it throughout this and this this just drive and love for teaching and like academia. And I think it even comes out when you talk about the idea, you know, we were talking about this imposter syndrome, but you're talking about like digging into PubMed and like really loving to learn the research and kind of all this kind of more heady kind of stuff which I, I'm also really into and I actually another interesting caveat I guess is I got really interested in nutrition back to our original topic and have spent a lot of time in PubMed like looking up a lot of nutrition research but can you talk about a little, little bit about um, this idea of I mean what is it for you about teaching and the whole academia side of things that just kind of really sets a fire for you?
0: You know that's such a good question again. I feel like it's got to be this notion of, you know, giving a person an aha moment, um helping a person to realize what is really going on, helping them to understand, having that moment where something really clicks. Um, nothing brings me more joy. And, um, it's funny, a few years ago I sat down and I wrote down some words that just really resonate to the, to my core of why I do the work that I do. And one of those words is to inspire. And I think just giving people little nuggets of information that inspire them to dig a little bit deeper, to do some learning on their own, to make some change in their life, to share that information with someone else. Like that's my jam. I, I love that. And um, I'm a lifelong learner, like I said before. So I love learning new things. I love recognizing that things have changed or that there's new way of doing things or that there's new research to show something we always believed or to dispel something that we always thought was true. So I love that. And I think it it fits in well in our industry because veterinarians like evidence. They like data. They like you know, um, credentials and and information to back things up. So it, it's a nice marriage between my passion for learning, my love of research, my curious mind, um, and translating it in a way that um, really helps to, you know, drive the message home for people or to, um, you know, shift their way of thinking or to inspire them to, to think in a new way.
1: So I really resonate with this idea of like constant learning. I guess it's like shows in my life experience. I think right now, actually, like I decided, I think I'm on like day 45. I've been trying to track my progress, but I decided to teach myself how to play the banjo. And I thought it would be far easier than I thought, but it's like completely different from any any instrument I've played. So like, yeah, so it's like I literally have it sitting next to my desk and like I'll practice between meetings and stuff. So it's like I'm like trying to get better. But well, what I'm interested in, and I, I know we're coming to the end, so um, I don't want to take up too much of your time, but I am interested because there's been times where, like you, I'm very curious. And sometimes that leads me into like, just like you researching a lot of other topics and trying to become educated on them. And then sometimes like there have been a couple of times where like my curiosity has kind of gotten me in trouble for lack of a better term. Um, one experience is uh, there was a doctor who was a great friend of mine and he shared some personal life experiences of something that he's interested in spiritually, and so I got interested in it, and I started reading a lot of books. And I came to him with a lot of questions, and he actually took offense to a lot of those questions. So for me, it was just kind of a way to, for me, from my perspective, it was a way to try to explore, right, get the other person's opinion, somebody who's involved in it. What, what's your thought process? And it was kind of really detrimental. So has, I mean. Maybe it's just me, maybe it's just my approach, but like, has has your curiosity and your desire for learning, like, has it ever gotten you in a precarious situation?
0: That's so interesting. I I guess you know I'm I'm stuck on this story that you've shared because I would wonder um, where the resistance from this individual came from and. Um, you know, again, it's like my psychology brain kind of kicks in. It's like, did they feel somehow threatened that that you were delving into this, um, topic and it was maybe questions that they couldn't answer? Um, or yeah, that's so interesting and so unfortunate. Um, I, I don't think I've had an experience like that, but I have definitely had people who I've coached who have shared exactly that with me. So I think of a one of my um, vet, vet techs who was in one of my recent online programs and during her coaching session, um, she shared with me, she was like, I just love asking questions and I'm always so curious and I always want to know, like, why is the vet choosing to use that medication or choosing to do it this way, or why are we not doing this when we did this last time? And she's like, but I feel like they get really upset with me when I ask them those questions. And, you know, I just really assured her, I said, look, please know that is nothing to do with you, your curiosity, your desire to learn your questions. I said, unfortunately, To some who may be feeling insecure or not confident in their own decisions or, you know, their own knowledge base, especially if you're asking them things that are outside of their scope of comfort or knowledge. I said they may feel defensive when you're asking questions. So sometimes rather than asking why are you, you're doing that? Um, because why is often very triggering for people in terms of getting them defensive, um, to say, um, you know, what was your thought? process, you know, in making that decision or what led you to choose that medication or whatever it is. So gosh, when has it gotten me into trouble? Um, well, I've certainly been down rabbit holes where I got distracted from work that was really important because I was, um, you know, getting into things that were, um, outside of my current scope of, of work. Um, and I think I've learned, too, to just be very mindful in how I engage in those conversations. I do think sometimes because I've done a lot of um, research, I sometimes do tend to be a little bit rigid in, in saying, well, there's studies to show this and there's studies to show that. And sometimes people will say to me, well, that you know, simply hasn't been my experience. And, and I don't have research to show it, but I can tell you what my experience is. And I think at the end of the day, Clint, I've just learned to just really stay open and curious to everything and to just come at things from a sense of curiosity. So if I am going into conversation with somebody um, about a, you know, a difference of opinion or a, a different way of approaching things that I just get super curious, I'm not there to necessarily share what I know and share what I've learned and share the research that I've done. I'm there to just understand, like, wow, I saw that you did it this way. Like, tell me more about your experience with that. I've never seen it done that way before. Or I'm really curious to hear what your thought process is here and make it all about them and what they can teach me versus what I can share with them.
1: Yeah. And, you know, hearing you think about that and, you know, I just realized I think about like, it probably was like the way I positioned the questions. Like, cause it, you know, you come off very factual. And so then if you come off very factual, then they're trying to defend that. And then it puts them kind of like, like a pit cage dog or a pin dog, you know, where now they're just trying to fight their way out of this rather than being like um, finding a more elegant way to approach maybe difficult questions. And yeah, you're right. And uh, yeah, I mean, even listening to you think about it, I think I've learned a lot about just, Maybe sometimes how to approach those things. So, I know we're, we're coming up, we've gone a little bit over here, and I greatly appreciate your time. So, the last couple of minutes is always just for you. It's shameless self promotion. You know, anything you want to talk about or promote, the floor is yours. How can people find out more about you?
0: Oh, thanks, Clint. No, I really appreciate you having me on. It's this has been honestly one of my favorite conversations as far as podcast interviews go. We've covered everything from government <laughs> to veganism <laughs> to imposter syndrome to conflict resolution. I love it. Um, well, if, if people haven't already guessed it, I'm a you know a real passionate advocate for the mental health and well-being of veterinary professionals. That's all members of the veterinary team. So if people want to learn more about me and my programs they can visit my website mariholowaycheck.com. And I'm also on a lot of social media sites. So um, Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, those are the big ones. And I recently, I, you know, for, for months now, I've been recording monthly Wellness Wednesday live video sessions. And I recently um, also started putting those into podcast format. So. It's not a, a, a fancy, you know, legit podcast like this one where it's... Oh, a- I
1: don't know about that. <laughs>
0: it's basically a recording of the video. But if, if people, you know, if your listeners like listening to content in this format, then it is on all the podcasting sites, Reviving Vet Med. And they're basically just little 30-minute snippets about wellness and um, all things mental health and well-being.
1: Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time. I can't, I can't appreciate it. I can't thank you enough. I greatly appreciate it if I could learn how to speak English. Um, Yeah. And thank you so much for being accommodating. And it really was an honor to be able to speak with you today and learn more about your story and allow me to kind of discuss and explore so many wide range of topics. And I guess it's why I never come in with canned questions because Had I come in and can questions, I never would. We never would have talked about veganism. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, just to make the word supercharged there. But yeah, and I I love this to be able to kind of explore different ideas. So thank you so much. I can't thank you enough. It It truly was an honor.
0: Oh, you're welcome. My pleasure.